Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. seaburysecurities.com. And Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome, listeners. I'm Ben Baldanza, and I'm glad you've joined us for this week's edition of Airlines Confidential. We've got another interesting show. We were down in Mobile, Alabama this week to tour the Airbus Final Assembly Line facility, and we'll be talking to Daryl Taylor, the Vice President and General Manager of the operation there. Hey, Ben. Hey, listeners. It's Chris Chimes here. I think you're going to enjoy our conversation with Daryl, but first, we've got some news items to cover off. Ben, a year ago, we were talking just about weekly about COVID. Now it seems like the regular topic of conversation is the pilot shortage. Lots going on on that front. During their quarterly earnings call last week, Mesa Airlines told investors they were suspending their outlook guidance for the rest of the year, citing pilot attrition and the lack of pilots to produce the block hours its mainline partners originally wanted. Mesa CEO Jonathan Ornstein noted that the major carriers are poaching airline regional airline pilots at a rapid pace after more than 4,000 pilots in the U.S. took early retirement during the pandemic. Related to that, Republic Airlines has petitioned the FAA to reduce the pilot minimum training hours from 1,500 to 750 for new hires. And Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina is saying he's considering legislation to raise the pilot retirement age from 65 to 67. Ben, do you think there's going to be some policy decisions to help this situation, or where is this all going? Well, Chris, this is clearly one of the big topics affecting the industry now. And I actually like both of these solutions, I think, for lots of reasons, lowering the training hours, the minimum required hours from 1,500 to 750 makes a lot of sense. That's still three times higher than it used to be before the terrible Colgan Airways crash, which is what propagated this change. And yet it creates the ability for regionals to hire a little more quickly and lets pilots early in their career get a good bulk of their early hours flying right seat with a seasoned captain in the commercial airspace environment. It's much better flying in real you know, controlled airspace, landing at O'Hare, landing in LA or LaGuardia, rather than towing banners or towing skydivers, right? And so I like that. In terms of the 65 to 67, pilots already have to stay very healthy. They have to have regular health checks. So as long as they are healthy and capable, I see no reason they couldn't fly to 67. Many pilots that retire after being commercial pilots continue to fly uh, for corporate jets or in private ways. And so it's not like something magically happens on your 65th birthday that you can't fly anymore. But obviously, if your eyesight's strong and your reflexes are still strong and you're healthy, there's no reason it couldn't go to 67. And just like the change from 60 to 65 
a number of years ago really helped the industry address what was a, then a shortfall in pilots. This would absolutely help. Not going to solve the problem long term, but the thing I like about these two decisions, Chris, is that together they may sort of bridge the industry to when all of the academies and all the training startups that many airlines have started are really regularly producing good pipelines of pilots. So I can't say where either of these are going to go and whether there'll be any support within the FAA to lower the training from 1500 to 750. And I can't say that Lindsey Graham will be successful in his efforts to try to raise the pilot retirement age. But I think both of those would be very helpful were they to happen. And if only one of them were to happen, then that would be incrementally helpful too. But I think both could go a long way toward bridging the industry to maybe five years from now, when all the academies that have started up, you know, should be producing well by then. Well, and this would take an emergency rulemaking proceeding to really have some oomph to it at the FAA to get this going quickly and have a shortened comment period and the like. I mean, these rulemakings can take years, as you know. So it'll be interesting to see how the FAA reacts to the request. Our listener, Matt from Rochester, New York, also wrote in and said that the Allegiant 8K filing had an excellent summary of the pilot shortage impact on the industry including a nice waterfall illustration that shows the impact of a senior captain at a major airline retiring and how it triggers a whole series of training events due to upgrades and pulling pilots up from the regionals and new hires and the like. You can access the filing on the Allegiant Investor webpage, and we're also going to put this on our our reading list for a few weeks. So if you want to uh, take a look at it off our airlinesconfidential.com page, you'll find it there. But it's, it's a really fascinating illustration that is somewhat mind-boggling, especially for someone who's not familiar with the training process, but very good and succinct description of what the industry is facing in this shareholder letter slash 8K. Absolutely, Chris. Kudos to Allegiant for putting this together because it is an absolutely terrific display. And to describe it in a little more detail, It starts out at the top with a single major airline, wide body captain retiring, and then all of the pilot training events that that creates at the airline where that pilot retired, and then the effects on other majors, the effect on regionals, and the effect on the uh, 135 carriers. And you can see the literally over 20 training events triggered because of this single retirement, leaving at the end the 135 carrier who needs to find a new pilot to go fly for them as everybody keeps moving up the chain. And it makes a ton of sense and it displays visually something that I've certainly had an intuition about, but never saw it so visually described so well. And it really just shows how Pilot retirements really drive enormous costs in terms of new training. And it's not just that one pilot retires and you have to go hire one new pilot. It's all the training cycles that happen at multiple airlines as a result. 
it's really a great piece. And I would encourage any of our listeners who are interested in this topic to go look at that and take a look at that display. Ben, another topic we visited a few times over the past few months, the industry's landscape in Latin America. After some restructuring comes consolidation. First, Colombia's Avianca announced a merger with ULCC Viva Colombia, and now they're cozying up with Brazil's goal. You know the markets down there and you know the players. What do you think? Well, I think this is fascinating and it's very aggressive by Avianca, who was very aggressive within their bankruptcy to lower their own costs significantly and recognize that the airline that Avianca used to be couldn't really be competitive in the way the both Latin American and world airlines are today. So in merging with Viva, they really consolidated and sort of took ownership of the Colombia domestic marketplace. But in combining with Goal, it suggests to me, Chris, that they're really trying to maybe put together a network to rival or maybe even someday best the LATAM network. As we know, LATAM sort of is a is a pan-continental sort of brand with brands in Brazil, Peru, um, not just the original Lan Chile in Chile and more. And it looks like Avianca may be saying, not only do we want to be lower cost and be dominant within Colombia, but we believe that there is a way to bring together carriers in Latin America to compete very well with the conglomerate that is LATAM. So I think it's fascinating. It means probably net good things for Latin American flyers within flyers within Latin America and people who travel to and from for work and pleasure in that it probably means more services, better coordination of services, probably lower fares since the cost structures have come down significantly. So my sense of all this, Chris, is this is really interesting and it just has sort of the ominousness to it that it's not the last thing we're going to see either. It's Brazil now. Might it be something else in a little while? Maybe Sky Airline in Chile or maybe JetSmart or maybe when the political environment is right, a Venezuelan carrier. Who knows? And I've got to wonder what this means for Houston. And I say that because, you know, Avianca is a member of Star. If they bring all these other carriers into the Star Alliance, that certainly is going to bulk up. United's position in Houston as a Latin American gateway is they have a really strong network on top of Avianca to feed traffic to and from. So, you know, a year ago we were talking, or more than a year ago, we were talking about Delta swiping LATAM from American. Uh, But this could be a pretty uh, powerful network of its own uh, to, like you said, rival LATAM. I agree. You know, years ago when I was at Continental Airlines, we used to have pretty serious discussions around Houston as a Latin American gateway and how over time it could compare to Miami. Now, Miami has obviously been the traditional largest U.S.-based gateway into Latin America. But we, even back in the 90s at Continental, had the sense that Houston could be more efficient 
as a way to flow people, certainly to the West Coast and the Western side of the U.S. versus Miami. And while Houston sort of never developed to be, it's still much smaller than Miami as a Latin gateway, many of the markets that work well out of Miami also do work out of Houston, maybe with a higher percentage of connect to places like Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Denver, San Francisco, and so on. But I think this combination of carriers that Avianca seems to be putting together could absolutely help ultimately make Houston into the kind of gateway its geography suggests it could be, which is a very credible second gateway to America next to Miami. Well, with that, Let's remember that Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, is a specialty finance and investment banking firm, boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at SeaburySecurities.com. And Ben, something tells me Seabury was a, an advisor to Avianca during their restructuring and probably for all these deals as well. I think that's right, Chris. <laughs> also, listeners, load planning for any operation is complex and time-consuming. Aerodata can help Aerodata's load planning solutions computerize and automate the entire load planning process, streamlining workloads, optimizing load distribution, enabling airlines to maximize their payloads, and ultimately eliminating potential delays by flagging flights that require extra attention. The solutions also integrate with reservation systems, cargo vendors, baggage scanning, container operations, and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and connect with your Aerodata team. One last item, Ben. I've been meaning to get to this for several weeks, but we've had so much going on. In late April, Delta Airlines announced it was going to start paying flight attendants for flight boarding time. This is the first time a major U.S. carrier has offered this up, and this is going to put several thousand dollars more in pay into the pockets of flight attendants each year. The Association of Flight Attendants is in the midst of an organizing drive, again, at Delta, and this was clearly seen as a way for management to blunt momentum for a union. Now the union representing Canadian flight attendants is demanding the same, and I think the American Airlines Flight Attendants Union has put this on the table in current contract negotiations. Is any major airline going to be able to not follow the lead of Delta, Ben? I think this was a fascinating move by Delta. And it would be shocking to me if this doesn't roll through most of the industry. The reality is flight attendants do a lot of work before the doors closed. They're the ones helping customers get their bags up, find space for their bags, suggest maybe gate checking the bag, resolving seat dupe issues real time, resolving someone who just sat in the wrong seat but doesn't accept that fact <laughs> issues, right? They deal with a lot of things. In some cases, even bringing, you know, a glass of water to customers, you know, while the boarding process is going on if they need it. So the fact that they haven't been paid for this time has been the standard. Now, I believe Delta is paying them at 50% of their normal hourly rate for that time. So they're saying, look, your real job is when the plane's in the air and you have a 
large safety component to your job that isn't as large in the boarding process. So they're paying them at 50% time in the boarding. That to me also seems kind of logical to pay them for that time, but maybe not the same as if they're actually flying in that time. So I think it's almost a given that this is going to roll through a lot of the industry, if not all the industry. I think it's going to be hard for even low-cost carriers to avoid doing this eventually. And the question will be whether it will, over time, just be an add-on to other pay rate increases flight attendants would get, or does this essentially become a pre-wired paid increase so that their next pay rate negotiation, their rates don't go up as much as they otherwise would because they have this pay? My point is, it's not clear to me that this is net new cost for the airline forever. It might be, but it might end up getting rolled into a total economic package when the flight attendants negotiate a whole new deal. And so I think it's really a fascinating move by Delta. I agree with you. It was a way to blunt momentum for the union, but it set up a process that is going to roll through the industry. I'm convinced, Chris. Yeah, I think you're going to see this on the table in every negotiation, and it's probably not going to come off the table. So one way or another, airlines are going to be dealing with this. Well, coming up, our conversation with Airbus Executive Daryl Taylor, and a heads up to our listeners, we recorded this on the assembly line floor, so you might need to adjust your volume just a bit. We've done our best to limit the ambient background noise, but there's still the noise of construction, so bear with us. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by AeroData, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. AeroData is a Garmin company. Well, welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We're recording live today from the final assembly line plant in Mobile, Alabama of Airbus Industries. And we're very happy to have with us Daryl Taylor, who runs this plant here. So, Daryl, please tell us about your background and how you ended up here in Mobile. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for, uh, for being here. We're excited to host you today. Uh, and get to talk a little bit about uh, what we're doing here in Mobile and our journey. So, a uh, little bit about me. Um, how did I end up here in, in Mobile? Uh, so, my, my career started with, uh, with Airbus in the UK back as an apprentice. And uh, that's really the roots of, of how I got into the aerospace industry. My hometown of Wrexham is uh, just 10 miles away from the Broughton facility. And I, uh, I spent five years as an apprentice in, in the UK. and. Uh, ended up moving uh, on from Airbus at that time to, uh, to Raytheon, Raytheon Aircraft, who, uh, who were in the general aviation business and uh, had just bought the Hawker program uh, from British Aerospace and got the benefit of not only working for them in the UK, but then uh, that, that brought me to, uh, to the US and I moved to Wichita, Kansas 25 years ago now. My background is uh, I'm a manufacturing engineer who uh, got into continuous improvement and then into operations management. And, uh, uh, that then took me from uh, from Hawker to to Bombardier. I enjoyed four great years uh, in Toronto uh, with uh, with Bombardier on the Q400 program. Uh, so moving from the general aviation into uh, let's say the regional uh, commercial business, and then uh, via a couple of years at GK and Aerospace, learning the supply chain, real benefit uh, of having a couple of facilities, one in Kansas, 
uh, and one in California. Uh, found my way back to, to Airbus here in Mobile in 2015 and uh, been, been here since. So, Daryl, you all just had a big announcement about the Airbus facility. Why don't you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, we had a really exciting uh, uh, you know, announcement earlier this week. Obviously, uh, had uh, been uh, started uh, by, uh, by our CEO, Guillaume Fauré, on uh, last Wednesday on the earnings call uh, when he confirmed um, not only the, the rates, the global rate for the A320 family to be at 65 uh, by the summer of 23, but uh, also uh, to increase that to 75 uh, as we move out into 2025. And uh, he, you know, he, he uh, indicated and gave away that the way we were going to do that is by, uh, or one of the ways we we're going to do that is by, by increasing our industrial capability here in Mobile. So we followed that up this week with a, a you know, a good party in Mobile. We like to, we like to celebrate. Um, you know, I know uh, well, Ben's been here before to, to see a groundbreaking. So we're, we were able to, uh, you know, with our local stakeholders announce what that really meant is a new final assembly line here in, in Mobile to complement uh, the existing A320 family final assembly line and also the A220 final assembly line that we opened two years ago uh, in Mobile. So there's other uh, tertiary buildings that we'll add and paint shops and things like that. Uh, uh, but the other takeaway is that's an additional thousand jobs in the aerospace industry right here in Mobile. So uh, we're really excited for what that means to Mobile, but obviously really excited that uh, you know, our impact and our um, engagement and, uh, and uh, participation in the overall global rates for, for, for Airbus and how significant that is. That's fantastic, and it's got to be great for Airbus and this region. Talk to us about why Airbus decided to build here in Mobile and what Mobile means to Airbus. Yeah, the story in Mobile goes back to uh, the original tanker program back in 2005-2006 uh, time frame, a little bit before I was here, but when uh, Airbus decided to go after that tanker deal and they did a, a series of site selections, Mobile became the selected location. And uh, obviously different things occurred and, and that tanker deal ended up not happening. But the relationships that had been built at that time here in Mobile uh, reinforced by the fact that we'd already opened uh, a space and defense facility out at, at uh, a regional airport, which primarily uh, services the you know, U.S. Coast Guard and uh, C-295 variant aircraft, and then an engineering center that we had built here in 2008. Those, those foundations meant that Tom Anders, our CEO at the time, had decided, look, we, we need to do something in Mobile. It's the right thing to do. This, this region is ready to build aircraft. The support of uh, the, the local stakeholders, including the businesses, was fantastic. And luckily, that uh, lent itself back in 2012 uh, to the, the ramp up of the single aisle and, and making sense to, uh, to not only have uh, final assembly lines in, in Hamburg, Toulouse, and Tianjin, but also to add one here in Mobile. That's amazing. And I know, Daryl, we're going to have uh, the mayor and the airport director of Mobile on the show uh, in a few weeks talking about the move of the airport to adjacent to your facility there in Mobile. So there's clearly a lot going on in aviation. Describe the process for our listeners of the assembly from start to finish and what happens there at your facility. Yeah, so we have two different final assembly lines here today. Um, uh, one for the 320-321 program that's coming into its seventh year. 
and a second one for the 220, which is uh, coming to its uh, two-year anniversary uh, since we opened. Uh, at, at a high level, uh, very similar processes. Uh, I think anybody who's been through uh, a uh, aircraft factory uh, would see uh, a lot of very similar elements at, at a high level, but maybe to kind of give you a little bit of a breakdown between the two programs. So on, on the 320, the 321 aircraft, and, and obviously the, the, the line that will uh, also double here in Mobile, we receive the major components from our sister facilities across Airbus, so our fuselage sections come from Sanazair and, and Hamburg, our wings come from our Broughton facility, and our VTP, HTP come from uh, uh, Stada in Germany and Getafe in, in Spain. So we're a very uh, integrated, vertically integrated organization in terms of the aerostructures build of our, of our aircraft on the 320, 321. Those major components are then shipped from uh, those locations and uh, consolidated in uh, San Jose uh, and uh, arrive here in the Portomobile about 14, 15 days later. And, and we are able to ship four full ship sets of those at a time to Mobile. They're then brought out of, uh, obviously, the, the, those shipping containers of shipping locations and entered into our production system, which basically comprises of joining the fuselage sections together, moving it into the next station to join the wings, in that station, we add uh, the, the main landing gear, we start to put power on the aircraft. The aircraft then is no longer needed to be lifted by any, uh, any cranes. It moves on its own wheels into, into a series of uh, equipping and completion bay positions, uh, ultimately ending in a, in a final completion of the aircraft into, in cabin. When that's complete, uh, aircraft's painted um, here on site and then uh, moved into our flight line and delivery center where we obviously complete our own internal testing and then bring the customers in to flight test the aircraft and, uh, and, and take delivery and uh, you know the aircraft leave here and go to, uh, to uh, our airlines home bases to go into, into, uh, into service in some cases with very little additional work and in some cases a couple of additional mods that the, the airlines do but, but generally the aircraft are up into the fleet uh, within, within a week to two weeks and, and flying uh, passengers. Uh, on the 220, it's, it's pretty similar. The only major difference is obviously the heritage of the 220 today comes from what was designed in the Bombardier system. The, the major components are very similar, but come from uh, a supply base, which, uh, which also brings some uniqueness, but also some great uh, understanding for us as an Airbus company, as we see you know, those aerostructures companies and, and are able to, to, to see what they do. So we have a combination of, of spirits who deliver wings for us out of Belfast, Shenyang Aerospace, who deliver uh, fuselage sections as well as shorts, and, uh, and then Stelia, uh, who are now a part of Airbus, uh, support, supply the cockpit. Those components are again delivered down to Mobile and, uh, and assembled in a very similar manner through the process here in Mobile. Actually, our, our two main assembly lines are identical in terms of square footage, just uh, created slightly differently in terms of jigs and tools for the two different programs. It's fascinating to watch the planes being put together here. Can you give us a little more detail about sort of the role of automation versus people in the building and how just in time is the process? Like, how far in advance do you get these components before they become an airplane? Yeah, we have a, we have a balance. Obviously, the, I would say the 220 is a slightly more uh, automated uh, program. We have a, a few locations where there's a little bit more automation in the join of the aircraft, you know, we uh, what we've taken pride of, to be honest, is 
is on the 320, 321, is um, you know making sure that we take proven practices out of our European facilities and bring them here into Mobile. And I think that's been key to the success. What we obviously are now doing through a couple of our uh, locations in Europe is pushing forward with some more automation, some more technology, uh, and we expect to see some of that deployed through the, the future file that we talked about and also then retrofitted back into this existing file. You know, the other is that we, we're really uh, keen at Airbus to make sure we have proven technologies before we try them in, in and impact our customers' ability to take aircraft. So, so again, we're working hard across our organization, brand new robotics organization inside Airbus, and uh, that's taking advantage also of a, of a robotics company that's part of our organization in Seattle. In terms of just in time, um, so obviously if we, we were able to receive up to four ship sets at a time, so the first ship set is, uh, is here three to four days before entry into the production system, and then the, uh, the others are you know, six, 10, 15 days up to before. In terms of other components that come into the, the facility, they're here uh, usually a, a week to two weeks before into our, into our system. So Daryl, the aircraft you're building there in Mobile, where are they being delivered? Is it a focus on what the Western Hemisphere, North America, South America, somewhere else? Where are these aircraft going? Yeah, so today we, we deliver all to North American customers, so all uh, US-based airlines on both the 320 and the 220. On the 220, we are really a facility that is aiming to deliver just to the North American market. Ultimately, that's, that's why we built the second facility here to complement the one in Mirabel. Um, and uh, you know, JetBlue, Delta, and Breeze are taking aircraft out of here on the 220. On the 320, while we have only delivered to North American customers, which is great because that means there's a huge uh, a demand for North American uh, A320 and 321s, we are capable and no reason why we wouldn't be able to deliver to other locations. We actually deliver our first aircraft to South America next year out of the facility just uh, as we, we look at global rates. So, you know, today, North American, uh, in the future, I would expect it to be much more of a, of a full uh, America's region. So, Daryl, you said you, that you deliver to North America. Who are the customers in North America taking delivery from this facility? We're really honored, to, obviously, to get all of the major mainstream guys to be taking aircraft out of here. Um, so, Delta, American, JetBlue, Spirit, Frontier. Hawaiian and Allegiant have all taken new aircraft out of here. We have an order, as you know, for United. We're looking forward to build United's XLRs out of here in Mobile as well. And then on the 220, we have Delta and JetBlue, uh, and also the brand new customer with Breeze Airways. So uh, we're really hitting all of the major airlines out of Mobile. Daryl, you're a big employer in this region. It seems across the country, everybody's having a hard time finding workers. Talk about your ability to sort of get the people you need to make this place hum. Yeah, no, you, you, it's, you, you, we certainly feel the same effect. We're today a little over 1,200 employees will be near a 1,500 by the end of the year. So anybody who is listening and wants a new opportunity in Mobile, let, let, please let us know. But, uh, and then with the announcement uh, this week, we'll actually grow to about 2,500 in the next, uh, next three years. I think we have two stories to tell in terms of workforce. Today, we've been um, very much focused on experienced, skilled workforce. We've been very successful in encouraging uh, and recruiting veterans. We're over 30% of our workforce are, are U.S. veterans, and we're, that's, we're very proud of that. And we, we also have wanted to find 
aerospace workers with experience. Obviously, over a period of time, that you saturate your local region and, uh, in that way. Um, so now we're, we're really moving into that next phase of workforce development. We launched our first apprenticeship program uh, right now. Uh, we announced that on Monday as part of our overall announcement. Uh, that class of 50 uh, starts training uh, at the end of the month. Uh, and uh, that'll be about a uh, 14, 15 month apprenticeship program. Um, we're also in the process working with uh, Bishop State, who are a uh, local HBCU, to introduce a, a, let's say, an early to mid-career change opportunity for, for to, to bring more people into the aerospace industry, and, that, and that's clearly what we need as well. We're also very blessed. Uh, we have some great schools, uh, Auburn, Alabama, Tuskegee, Bishop, we've just talked about University of Southern Alabama that all have some great programs that are feeding us talented engineers as well. So, um, you know, we're, we, we, we're feeling the effect, I think, like, like everybody in a very challenging market, um, but we're also managing to, to attract that talent. So we're talking with Daryl Taylor of the Mobile Final Assembly Facility for Airbus. And with us today is also known to our listeners, Chris Sloan, who joined us at the event. Chris, do you have a question for Daryl? Yeah, I had a couple. I mean, you're in a unique place here. You, you're the one uh, Airbus line that really has the two families, the A220 and the 320 series, that are really the heart of the market right now. And you, know, you have this very finely tuned machine with the 320, but as the 220, you know, has come online, and you know, you, there's a lot of, uh, you know, demand for that aircraft, and I would think, and it seems pressure to make that assembly process even more efficient and rapid and and keep the quality control up so i mean can you talk about the fact that you know how you have these two unique this unique situation here and you know what you're contributing to the uh you know these how maybe leverage these programs off of one another yeah i think, I think we obviously we are you know in a very fortunate position to have uh, you know the two two most popular aircraft i would say in the market right now being built right here in mobile and and you're right that does put uh I wouldn't call it stress on the system, but it certainly makes it, you know, important that we are able to hit our uh, production milestones and our production commitments. And two very different programs in terms of maturity, right? And, you know, we're we're sitting by the side of, you know, aircraft nearly 11,000 on the on the 320, and uh, we're still in the in the in the 200s on the 220. So, but also two aircraft designed in different times. So there's some pluses there. So, you know, I think. We get the benefit here in Mobile of playing off what was a very strategic decision. You know, we were able to get a, an amazing aircraft through the relationship of the joint venture and, and obviously now uh, our position on that aircraft, which, you know, from an Airbus point of view, got us access to maybe different supply chain, got us access to some different technology and some different ways of working. And likewise, the 220 is gaining the benefit of a very legacy experience on the, from the 320 point of view, so so part of our part of our role is is absolutely to share, you know, some some experience in terms of manpower that we we have here to develop um, some synergies that helps both programs be able to deliver on, on quality, on cost, and, and on time, and also try to you know really leverage the greater Airbus experience, you know, through a quite simple way into the uh, into the 220 production system through the relationship here in Mobile. So as you talk about, you know, you know, like, uh, you know, there's some manufacturers that have bought production to different locations and they've had to send aircraft away for rework. And, you know, you don't hear about that here. You hear these aircraft or what's being built here in Alabama in the south and America is 
absolutely equivalent to what is happening in China or Hamburg or, or Toulouse. And so, you know, I wanted to get a sense of, you know, there's different cultural differences and, and you know, how you all have been able to bring that together and make that a success. Well, we, we certainly are proud to, 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 uh, to live up to what you just said. And certainly I hope uh, the listeners, uh, you know, who, who take our aircraft feel that way as well. You know, I think from a cultural point of view, it's for sure that Airbus puts a priority on on safety, product safety, people safety. As we were walking around, I was proud, you know, to share where we were in our safety record here in Mobile, and I think that you know reinforces when we, you know, not had a lost time safety incident in our employees uh, for way over three years. So I think it reinforces the baseline of that. I think also, you know, when I think about the history for for Airbus. Uh, the 320 obviously which is now seven years here in Mobile you know the benefit of being the fourth final assembly location and the second offshore location is there is a robust set of quality processes you know audited and and, and oversaw through our internal quality methodology but also through the governing bodies Uh, you know we, we get audited uh, through EASA, for those who don't know that we uh, we build actually the aircraft here under a single production certificate for Airbus, so it's not different in Mobile than it is in Hamburg or Toulouse or Tianjin. Single production authorization, EASA audits us. Uh, we actually have an audit coming up in the next couple of weeks, which FAA will will partner on and be part of that. So that oversight is is consistent, and, and you know, and ultimately that's the way we manage our business. You know, we want people to do the right thing. We we you know one of the uniqueness that I really feel about Mobile and Alabama is people will speak up, they'll say when things don't look right, uh, and then we work on that and make sure that we're, we're aligned to the processes and, and move forward. So, um, but you know, while you know, we are very proud of our performance on time out of here, we're even more proud of, uh, of the quality of the aircraft that goes out to our customers and ultimately to the airline customers. I know rates at different plants and different lines sometimes are closely held secret, but can you talk about you know, how these plants are ramping up and, and the rates in comparison to, say, Mirabel in Europe, and then, you know, and what goes into actually increasing rate, especially with this incredible demand you're trying to fulfill? You know, we really treat the global rate as we are one, but in terms of the overall context, as I said, you know, we're on the, on the road on the 320 to be at, at 65 aircraft a month for the whole global network by the summer of 23. Uh, and 75 in, in 2025, the, there's, there's built-in capacity in our facility to support 65 today, as is there is embedded capacity across the whole network for that 65. The investment in Mobile and some other of, of our manufacturing facilities is that difference to get to 75. And then on the 220, you know, we're on track to a joint rate of rate 14 between Mobile and Mirabel. Um, with Mobile being primarily focused on that North American market, as we said. In terms of the methodology of, of ramping up, you know, ultimately the, the good news is in both the 320 and the 220, Mobile is following in the footsteps of rate steps that have already been produced in other locations. So, again, very much a systematic approach. We take the proven practices in the other locations, the engineering, the manufacturing engineering, the quality system, the number of people, the line balancing to create the production system, what tools and pieces and positions. Um, you know, over my shoulder here is a brand new station that we added to help us with our last production rate step earlier this year. So we take those lessons learned, we make those investments, and obviously then we bring on our employees anywhere from three to, to nine months before they're needed 
depending on what skills that they bring with them and what the uh, what their role. And then we get at it. Can I just ask one last question about that? So, can you say is there a um, you know for both of the programs is there a rough say span of time it takes from when the actual aircraft enters the foul and then departs the foul uh, and makes it through all the stations? Yeah, we're, we're on the three twenty, we're three twenty, 320, three twenty one. Um, uh, you know, somewhere in the uh, between forty to forty five days from the point that it enters the facility, the point it flies away with our customer. Obviously, on the 220, that's a little longer today, you know, slower production rate, earlier learning, somewhere a little north of 100 days, but uh, that in itself will, will change as we, as we ramp up uh, to our, its final production rate here in Mobile by 23, 24. And then the last part of that is once you push out, how long is it until you do your first kind of, your Airbus first flight where you, uh, your pilots uh, test the aircraft and maybe talk a little about that process before yeah, delivery. Yeah, so I mean once the aircraft really moves out of the production line, so you know we, uh, we, we go through a certification process, move the aircraft out of our, what we call our flow line or assembly lines into the flight line, the aircraft at that point is fully assembled, it's already been tested, you've got the, the ground test uh, requirements or the hangar test, let's say it that way, it's, the interior's in, it's painted. You know, anywhere from, you know, to be honest, 48 hours to 96 hours, the aircraft will, can, can be flying with our, with our pilots. Wow. Well, Daryl, you're a great spokesman for Airbus. You can hear the enthusiasm about what's going on in your voice. For our listeners, I know there's a lot of noise in the background, but we're on the assembly line, and uh, this has been a great facility to be able to touch and feel and get a sense of how much is going on with Airbus. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Chris. Daryl, thank you so much for inviting us to your facility. Thanks for building terrific airplanes. And thanks for giving our listeners sort of an inside view of what you're doing here. We really appreciate it. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. The archive.net is now boarding. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We had a very cool tour at Airbus in addition to the interview with Daryl, and we thank them for their hospitality. It's now time for listener questions. Remember, you can send us a question via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. Ben, this first question is from someone who prefers just to be identified as anonymous from somewhere. So I like that. Um, Hey, Ben and Chris, I love the show and I listen religiously every week. Last week's episode was refreshing since your host was trying to find new retailing capabilities within the airlines. In my view, airlines keep talking about retailing capabilities, but keep doing the same thing as your guest hinted. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about Amazon potentially entering the airline space with all of its retailing capabilities and deep customer knowledge and an understanding of how airlines operate due to their exposure to Amazon Air. It looks to me that they could find, if they wanted to, to, a way to get into airspace using current operations like Sun Country to carry passengers. Is this too crazy of a thought? P.S. I think it was excellent that you brought on Catherine Creedy to the show. I think she had some valid points. The only thing I did not like was she was reading too much of it. She sounded like she was reading 
a manifesto. Uh, I kind of chuckled at that comment. Anyway, let's talk about Amazon. No more about Catherine Creedy. We know our guests either loved her or didn't, but it's it, let's talk about Amazon or retailing now. Well, I wouldn't put anything past Amazon. Amazon has continued to surprise investors and customers since they started as a bookseller of how they can be involved in so many things. So Amazon ultimately using commercial airline space to ship packages like they've done with Sun Country or ultimately selling travel as one more thing out of their store is certainly within the realm of possibility. The issue is how Amazon would compete and what they might offer both consumers and airlines compared to more traditional sources like Expedia or Kayak or even Google Flight. So Amazon will need to think of a way beyond just the fact that they have this wonderful omnipresent brand to do it. Um, and how that would end up working, what their economics would be, what the consumer economics would be. Would Amazon have the retail strength to demand even more discounted fares from the airlines than they currently offer? That might make it difficult for them to get enough airline seats if they were to do that. If they need to get their margin by marking up those fares or charging some sort of fee, I think the economics of this are really, really interesting. And with Amazon being such a powerful retail brand, Anonymous, I really think that uh, it's would be almost expected that at some point they're going to make a play here. And for me, it'll be really interesting to see how they choose to do it. So really good thoughts. And I'd love to visit somewhere sometime. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a couple thoughts uh, on your response, Ben. One, Amazon can't do anything if they don't have the content. So this is going to require travel suppliers to give the content to Amazon. You know, they've spent a lot of effort trying to get away from the online travel agencies, trying to not rely on the GDSs. Now they're moving back to the GDSs a bit as they improve their retail capabilities. But is an airline going to want to turn over their content and their supply to Amazon? I think that's one question. I did also kind of laugh at Anonymous's comment about Airlines talk about retailing, but they keep talking and doing the same thing over and over again. And I can't remember if I talked about this previously on the air, but I remember Tom Klein, the former CEO at Sabre when I was there, talking about how, you know, you talk about you're so good at retailing, but every time I go to check in at a kiosk, you ask me if I want to buy miles. I have 2 million miles in my account or whatever the balance was. I have never bought miles. Why do you keep asking me? And so it's it's that kind of a thing where, um, again, retailing isn't just asking over and over and over again as much as finding and bobbing and weaving to get to the right place of making the sale. And so that's, I think, where airlines have some opportunities to get smarter and convert into revenue streams by being more creative about how they make the offer. Makes sense, Chris. And for listeners who may be wondering what we're referring to or what Anonymous referred to, it was our discussion with Jay Sorensen of IdeaWorks that brought up these ideas that airlines need to retail more and really aren't that good at it. 
Well, Chris, I want your opinion on this next question from Thomas in Dallas. Ben and Chris love the show. I always look forward to listening on my commute each Wednesday. This is going to sound harsher than I intend, but it is a phenomenon I've noticed over the years. Is there a halo over Southwest that makes them more immune to bad press when they mess up, even when it's their own doing? One example is the episode that dropped on Tuesday, April 5th. Southwest had a massive meltdown in the weekend prior that started with another technology failure. You guys got on BAIAG's case about their recurring IT issues, but didn't say anything about Southwest. I flew to Las Vegas for a conference that weekend. Thankfully, I was on American and didn't have any issues. But many people I know that attended that conference with me flew Southwest and experienced disruptions. It seems like when it's American United, Delta, or JetBlue, the airline gets singled out. I'd probably add Spirit in there too. <laughs> when it's Southwest, it reverts to this all airlines are having trouble mantra, even when it's purely a Southwest issue. For 2021, Southwest finished seventh in on-time performance behind not only all four legacy carriers, but Spirit and Frontier as well. I don't think Southwest is a bad airline or headed down the drain. They still perform much better financially than their legacy peers. I just think it's fair to call them out just like everyone else when they have issues and acknowledge that they're in a bit of a funk right now and have work to do. What do you think, Chris? Well, Thomas, thank you for the question. Um, I think you're right. Southwest does have a halo on their brand and on their persona, uh, if airlines have a persona. And you're talking to someone who went head-to-head with them in the local Dallas market for years back when I was at American. They are very good at what they do. They have managed expectations, and we've talked about this a bit, uh, Ben, previously in the context of when people fly Southwest, they know what they're going to experience. And uh, so they've managed that expectation, and they've manage that expectation with the press as well in ways that have benefited them. So, you know, I've seen firsthand something happened in American. We got you know called on the media carpet and Southwest just kind of kept skating. So I, I do think that people are obviously paying more attention to them. They're now a major carrier. They're not the low cost carrier. People still think that they offer low fares when a lot of times they aren't the lowest in the market. Again, we've talked about how they don't sell on OTAs and other open marketplaces because they don't want to be compared head to head with the major carriers in that regard. But you know, I I think you have put your finger on an issue that they have benefited from and used to their advantage. We've certainly talked about the Southwest IT issues from time to time here, and are not mentioning them wasn't a way of giving them a pass as much as talking about a different region of the world and some of the stuff going on with aviation. There's that lurking halo benefit that they've had for decades. And if they play their cards right, they will continue to. But as they get bigger, they're also experiencing big airline challenges as well. You know, Chris, I also think that this call out represents the power of a really strong brand too. Southwest has operated for so long and is such a household name and is generally recognized as having low fares, even though their fares aren't that low anymore, 
and good operations, reliable operations, so that when they mess up, it's seen as an anomaly, as this isn't usually the case. So we're going to get back to our view that they're this, you know, really run airline. But that comes from, you know, 40, 50 years of doing things really well for a long time. And I think outside of the industry, companies with really strong brands probably benefit from this same kind of thing relatively in their space. It's just something that we create perceptions about companies and people for that matter that are hard to change and that hurts some and helps some. Yep. Look, you got to give them credit for being able to maintain that that brand awareness and that brand value um, for decades. And it's been carefully mapped out and it's an inside out with regard to the culture and how they interact with their customers. And, um, you know, you don't, you don't uh, hear a lot about Southwest employees mistreating passengers. I'm sure it happens, but in general, people find their personnel very friendly and accommodating and they're singing the safety drill and, you know, having fun at the gate. And those things are happening at other airlines too, but it's just, again, part of the Southwest spirit. Well, that's a wrap for this week. Thanks again to Airbus for their tour. And thanks again to all of you for listening. Let me close with my shout out. And it's to the Palm Beach International Airport air traffic controller named Robert Morgan, who successfully and remarkably guided a passenger on a Cessna caravan to land that aircraft after the pilot became incapacitated. While he was on his lunch break last Tuesday, Robert was called back from his lunch to play the role of hero right out of some movie scene to calmly walk the gentleman through a step-by-step procedure to get the plane safely on the ground. Robert had never flown that particular plane, so he was guessing about the controls and where they were, and the person at the controls had never flown a plane, but it was a great story with obviously a great ending. Great shout out, Chris. There's great audio available of that that you can find on the media, and at the when the plane on the ground, someone saying the passenger landed that plane, and somebody else said the passenger landed that, and they had no air experience, and it really was an amazing thing. Yeah, it's a great shout out. My shout out goes to Braniff Airways, and while Braniff hasn't been an airline for forty years, it was in the last week that they had their forty-year anniversary of shutting down, which isn't the greatest thing. But in the annals of this industry, Braniff played a really important role, and I bet we have plenty of listeners who either worked at Braniff at one point, or knew of Braniff, or competed with Braniff. But whether it was the Calder painted airplanes, or the infamous you know, you raise your fares tomorrow and I'll match call or whatever. They play a real important part in this aviation's history. So in that sense, shout out to Brandon. I like that one too. Thanks again for listening, everyone. We'll see you back here next week. Have a great week, everyone. And if you get a chance to go visit the final assembly line at Airbus, go do it. It's a great facility. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.